0: Hi and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're
1: your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Keith. A note for our listeners, this episode has a few scattered audio glitches.
0: Welcome and uh, we're very excited today to have two really distinguished scholars as our guests on this podcast. So the first is Lauren Klein, who's an associate professor in the departments of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University. And at Emory, she directs the Digital Humanities Lab. She's the author of the books An Archive of Taste, Race and Eating in the Early United States, and with Catherine D'Agnazio, Data Feminism. Our second guest is Sandeep Sony, who's a PhD candidate in computer science in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Institute of Technology. His work spans computational social science and computational humanities and has involved modeling the social dynamics of language change. Welcome both Lauren and Sandeep.
1: Um, and today the paper that we're going to be talking about is abolitionist networks modeling language change in 19th century activist newspapers and this is a cultural analytics paper that examines language change in 10 abolitionist newspapers from the 19th century and their computational approach combines semantics with sociolinguistics the authors use diachronic word embeddings and network statistics to identify which newspapers were leaders of semantic change and they found that Two newspapers edited by women, one by a white woman and one by a black woman, led many changes. Their findings present a framework for measuring semantic change that could also be applied to other textual data and also suggest new directions for future intersectional research on the abolitionist movement. Is there anything else about the paper that the authors would like to add? No, that was a great summary. I'm gonna, I'm gonna
2: have you be my hype person in the future. <laughs>
0: Um, Sandeep, uh, anything you'd like to add or clarify on the actual sort of um, high level summary of the paper and then we can dive into the process of how this wonderful paper came about.
3: Well, I I think it summarized the overall sort of substantial claim of the paper. Um, One thing I would say though is um, in sort of the computational sociolinguistic space, um, there's been a lot of research on just identifying what has changed. Um, in language, um, you have this like large scale corpora and then, you know, you come up with this cool word lists and visualizations of words that had this meaning before and words that had some other meaning later. What this paper does is sort of go a little bit forward um, and say, we, we are not only concerned about what has changed, but who was leading the change. Um, and that's sort of an interesting question to ask in itself, because then you get to the... Social side of change, um, and um, so this is you know like one of the papers which um, which does this for semantic changes. Um, I think I haven't seen um, other work of this kind.
0: Great, yeah, and I did find this really fascinating that you're you're combining really rich um, you know sociolinguistic modeling with a very interesting specific substantive question. So uh, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about where this idea come from came from where were the the first sparks that there might be something here Um, and then how did you grow from that
2: yeah I mean maybe I'll take that one because I've been there for a long time I mean the first sparks of this paper started in 2013 or 2014 or something like that but it connects actually to what Sandeep was saying about this sort of going beyond sort of standard large modeling approaches that just sort of take a big data set that is chosen because it is big and just sort of sees what is out there. You know, this project really began as a uh, collaboration between me and Jacob Eisenstein, who's the third person involved, um, who's not here at this minute, because we wanted to we we both started as Georgia Tech faculty the same year. We met each other during sort of orientation type activities. Um, and we just really liked how each other thought. And from the very beginning, we wanted to do research that advanced question, active questions in both of our fields, right? And I think a lot of the time with collaborative research, you get work that tilts more towards one side or the other where you're, you, know, you meet up with someone and someone says like, oh, here's the standard modeling approach that you can apply to your interesting data. Or someone says like, oh, I have this really, you know, interesting, new, bespoke, whatever model, I just need some data to test it on. And we, from the very beginning, wanted to make sure that it was both data that would answer interesting questions for me, and some sort of computational approach. And there was a big question about what that might be, um, what the approach would be, but that would also be interesting for Jacob. Um, And maybe I'll stop there, because there's a lot of different ways in which I, what
1: happened, between twenty thirteen and now,
2: <laughs> a lot of things happened.
1: Mm-hmm. So, when did Sandeep get pulled into the project?
3: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, um, yeah. So, I can I can tell you sort of my journey, or um, I gravitated towards this project. Um, I had an internship uh, at USC um, I think a couple of years back. Um, and I got very interested in semantic change um, during that internship. Um, and so I was talking with my advisor, Jacob Eisenstein is my advisor, um, of, you know, like most of these papers, they just come up with like cool visualizations and what has changed, what can we do further? Um, and we came up with this idea that um, instead of just saying like, you know, this word has changed, we could um, we could say, if I'm given any instance um, of this word in the corpus, I should be able to, you know, say if this is like the advanced meaning of it or the conventional meaning of it. Um, but you know, so that project finished, and then you know, we wanted to go beyond. Um, so you know, like instead, instead of just saying you know every instance uh, this is an advanced or uh, or a conventional meaning, we want to incorporate it. We want to incorporate more metadata, like not just like you know timestamp as the additional metadata for for the corpus. But what if you know like who is generating these uh, these documents? Um, and so initially, um, you know, I, I wasn't uh, very uh, focused on the substantial uh, part of the project, but more the modeling part, uh, which is can I just come up with this kind of a model um, where I can say these kind of things? You know, like this word has changed at this time, and this uh, source, you know, like a general um, uh, sort of entity is leading or lagging um, at that point. Um, so that's how sort of my initial entry in the project was, that took a while, um, but after we got that uh, done, that's when we started actually working on a, like a real corpus and seeing like what newspa- which newspaper is ahead, which newspaper is behind.
0: Right, yeah, can you, I mean, speaking of the data set, uh, I mean, this data set of abolitionist abolitionist newspaper seems extremely important to study. Um, and how did you go about finding the data set, gaining access and, and seeing it as, like you said, this, this nice meld between something that's very important to study, but also fits in with uh, what you were talking about on the methodological side, Sandeep, of, of sort of potentially having the metadata that you would need in order to study this semantic change.
2: Yeah, I mean, the data set has been present in this project almost from the very beginning. You know, again, it sort of initially, you know, because of the timing of all of this, uh, Jacob and I thought this would be a topic modeling project because we applied for a grant, the first grants to create the data set in 2013 when topic modeling was new. Um, but then it turned out that. Um, it just, the data turned out to be a lot uh, messier than we thought it would be. And so we spent a long, long, long time getting it to a state where it actually could be used for real research. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, where it came from was that, you know, we knew that we wanted to work on this particular era because it's interesting sociologically, historically, and linguistically, right, you know, the, first half of the 19th century and especially the abolitionist movement, it's, you know, it's really interesting because it's a one of the most important social movements ever, right, it led to the abolition of slavery in the United States. Um, it also was, uh, racially diverse and also interesting in terms of the gender dynamics um, which again you know cannot be said of all social movements ever you know and I guess interesting like you know meaning like not always amazing right there were incredibly problematic relationships between for instance white women abolitionists and black women abolitionists Um, so we knew like we knew that this was a space where interesting work could take place that would be meaningful um, and we also recognized that the data you know there wasn't like an easily accessible data set out there that we could just pluck off the internet and turn into the sort of basis for our project um, and at the time also like you in order to purchase this kind of data it cost a lot of money and we didn't have a, like you know the neh funds projects at orders of magnitude less than the nsf and so that's actually another huge issue that you just can't build in data access in the same way that you can for uh, projects that have funding that come from other sources. And it was also at a time when not a lot of people were doing large scale data analysis. And so we were actually the first project team that approached this data set provider. And actually they weren't even a data set provider. They were just a mom and pop website that had hand keyed a bunch of newspapers and they didn't even understand what we were asking them to do. Um, And so it took almost a year to figure out the licensing agreement. We kept on saying like, please just hand over your data. We promise this license says we won't share it. We won't reuse it, um, et cetera, et cetera. But they were very uncomfortable handing over physical files. Like it would have come presumably on a hard drive or some uh, DVDs or something like that. so like we prefer if you the data from our website, but they didn't realize that they were using cloud hosting with a pay for access model, and so they initially we were, I was like, are you sure? And they're like, yes, we're sure. Um, and so like I was doing the scraping, and it, like one or two, and I built in like you know pauses so I didn't overload the server or whatever. Um, but at, about a week in, they got a bill from wherever it was, and they actually wrote a, a an email to Georgia Tech Legal, being like, your scholars and researchers are you know, disrupting. And we were like, no, 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 like we, here's the email. Like, this is what you told us to do. So anyway, that was kind of a funny side story. Um, But then we did end up with all this data that we had scraped off the web. And then because it was like hand coded HTML, the HTML itself was super buggy. So even like beautiful soup couldn't clean it and like, And at a certain point we realized they, you know, their HTML formatting had introduced errors into the words and Sandeep spent a whole year trying to automate some of the data processing. Anyway, I mean, like it really, it was such a long process, but I think, you know, that's kind of the point, which is that, and you know, this is something that I think all of us know, especially people in the computational or quantitative humanities space is that you can't come up with interesting results if you don't have interesting data and usually what makes it interesting is that, you know, no one has really looked at it before, so.
0: Wow, that that's fascinating. Um, I, I, I just have a general question of how do you hold on to that kind of momentum, Lauren, of, <laughs> you know, you had this idea in 2013, it's now 2021, where you're finally getting something published, right, that's eight years of, of continuing a project that that is taking a long time. And at least from the computer science perspective, when we're used to turning things over very quickly, like can you can you talk about your process of, of how you hang on to that idea and, and keep it moving forward? Yeah. I
2: mean, I guess I'm sort of like a compulsive finisher, I've realized over the years. Like I feel like most people have like a last and first out method. I definitely have a like first and first out kind of method. So like I'm always working from the bottom of the stack. Um, And that's just me, that's how I do work. Um, But I will say that like Jacob and I both put this on pause for a while, I think for honestly, practical reasons. You know, for me to get tenure in my field, I had to write a book. And at that point, computational work didn't, there wasn't a model of how computational work could be published in a book form. Now there are, there's books like, you know, Ted Underwood's book and Andrew Piper and stuff like that, Richard So. Um, But at that point, it was very clear that I had to write a traditional scholarly, scholarly monograph and that took some time. And Jacob, meanwhile, you know, he was being evaluated on grant money, putting through PhD students, you know, all these kinds of things. And like I said before, NSF, I mean, NEH grants are not compelling to Georgia Tech p committees, you know, who count in the millions. Like these are like tens of thousands of dollars, right? And so it just didn't make sense for him practically. And also you can't, they're also not multi-year in many cases. So you can't fund a grad student. I mean, there's all these kinds of disciplinary uh, constraints that make this type of work really, really hard. And it's a kind of work that really does need to be a labor of love because institutionally, you know, it's, it's, we're not at a place where it can be supported with very, very rare ex- exceptions. Um, so we just sort of kept it in the back of our minds. And, you know, we always knew that this was a really generative data set. And we have published over the years with, you know, other work on this project. We had a whole visualization spinoff project that we did for a while. Um, but I think the good thing now is that now that we do have this really nice and clean and very um, sort of accessibly marked up data set, like we can use it pretty easily for a lot of different things. And I've done that, like some of my other work that I've done on my own has also made use of that.
1: So I noticed that there's um, a workshop paper that also came out of this work called Correcting Whitespace spa- Errors in Digitized Historical Texts." Can you talk a little bit about um, the technical problem in this work, and then how and why you broke it off from the main paper?
3: Um, yeah, I, I, I can take that because it was uh, really a paper which um, um, which stopped us from moving forward. Um, because we, you know, when I started this project, I was under the impression like this data is great, like it's well cleaned up and everything. And then as uh, Lauren mentioned. Um, we actually saw that um, there were a lot of errors uh, in this digital text um, that we had. Um, One of the particular ones that kept on popping up were uh, like two adjacent words, uh, which should have been separated by a white space, that white space was always getting dropped. Um, And so uh, this is mostly, you know, an artifact of uh, newspapers from that uh, time where, Articles were separated by like thin columns. Um, and so, you know, like uh, if the if the line is split across, uh, if, if a word is split across two lines, um, then you have like those two words not um, separated properly. Um, and even though the even though there are volunteers who like keyed in uh, this data, uh, that error still existed. Um, and so we used to see like crazy words, like, you know, Senator admits like being just one word. Um, and, uh, that, that meant like, you know, reduction of, uh, genuine words, but it also, you know, like these words then appeared in different contexts and our model always used to say, like, these are the words that have changed. Um, so without correcting that, we would not have been able to come up with like a proper list. Um, so, you know, like. But also, you know, we didn't want to make, you know, some like very fancy uh, sort of modeling approach to uh, solve this problem. So we just came up with like simple n-gram language models uh, to see whether the probability of seeing these words within the context that they appear in um, is greater when they are split or um, you know when they are together. We did this for every word, and then you know like. Um, Using some sort of like simple uh, heuristics like that, we were able to eliminate all of those errors. Well, not all of those errors, but... Um, um, it was pretty
2: was, accurate, right? Like in the 90s. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah, it was surprisingly accurate. Um, but I guess, you know, like um, there are still a few, but then, you know, their frequency is not as large as um, as the ones which were uh, usually watched.
2: Yeah. The one thing I'll say about that is like, it was, you know, you like, I feel like we, I, especially when teaching, I give these, all these examples of like, it's really easy for people to see the difference, but it's really hard for computers. But this was one of these examples where like Jacob Sandeep and I to test it actually just had, you know, we, we just like tagged this one as what these words should be. Um, And it was one of, it was like, it was shocking. It was like, this should be so easy. And yet it is, because it is so easy for humans and yet it is so hard um, for computers to tell. So I, I now
0: use this example in my class a lot when I'm teaching about that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it seems like this problem of having really messy data, but it that data be, being very important is something that really gets neglected in a lot of like the publication um, space that we really uh, uh, value or, or contributes to, to tenure and whatnot. So, I mean, what advice do you have then for, for scholars that are trying to use really important data, but they're facing these giant barriers of getting it into a place where they can actually even start the computational modeling thing. How did you think about that process? How'd you go about it? And, and what advice would you give? I guess I feel like Sandeep, the verdict is sort of still out <laughs> on, on your involvement with this project.
2: But I think what I would say is that like it can't be the only work that you do um, and I think you need to be really strategic like that white space errors paper and of spinning off the projects along the way that do lead to publications and opportunities for getting the project, if not the final publication in front of people. I know that for instance, Jacob also ended up teaching with this corpus a lot in his NLP class at Georgia Tech. Um, and so that was another way it became useful. But the thing, I mean, the, the, the thing is that like, it, the end result is that it, you know, it's worth it, right? Because it leads to interesting research and meaningful research. And, you know, we're just gonna, I feel like now we have this mentality where like most things are kind of low hanging fruit because these approaches have not been applied to any data set. And so as long as you can just sort of hook up the new approach with some sort of data set you have something interesting to say but that will not be true always. And I think as like more of the least the nerd world is realizing now there are a lot of problems with just going to the first data set that you find right um in terms of bias in terms of like in my you know fields that i work in just sort of questions of representation and sort of who who you choose to tell stories about right and this i mean it's in effect it's the same issue transposed into the present in terms of sort of accessible data sets versus ones that are truly representative or faithful to the problem that you're wanting to solve. And so I do feel like this is like a general issue that an increasing number of people are gonna have to contend with. And honestly, people who wanna do sort of informed ethical research are going to have to prioritize because it's a sort of precondition for doing work that you can actually point to and say like, this has something real to say about the world, whether it's in the present or the past.
1: So going back to like when we talked about everyone assembling together um, to make this project happen, would it be fair to characterize Lauren as the domain expert and Sandeep and Jacob as the computational experts? Like, what are what are each peop- each person in this project bringing to the table when in terms of expertise?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, for for me and Jacob, you know, like we didn't know much about that era. Um, And I mean, definitely not me, Jacob, at least had like some uh, level of understanding. Um, We we were able to look at sort of the raw data when we said like this word changed. look at the near neighbors and we were able to, you know, like make some sense of it. But we didn't know for sure, like why is this word showing up and not some other word? Um, And like, you know, what is the story behind uh, these terms that are coming? Um, So for that, um, definitely Lauren was the, was the go-to person, because uh, she helped us understand, uh, you know, why is this meaningful and what's the significance of these newspapers? Um, though, you know, and that also helped sort of, um, make ourselves confident, uh, in our model because uh, it wasn't just uh, garbage that was uh, coming up. Um, so yeah, so like the more sort of domain knowledge, uh, we only gained, um, because Lauren um, helped us to uh, um, understanding what's going on.
2: Yeah, I think the only thing that I would say to add on to that, like that was definitely most the a good characterization of this project. But I feel like in general, sort of technical knowledge versus domain knowledge is not a binary, right? And that different projects invo- always involve a different balance of. You, sometimes the same people contributing sort of different levels of expertise to different parts of the process. And I think that that's also, that, like, I feel like that's a really important thing to recognize for collaborative research. And that's not like sort of a lesson that I've learned as someone who does my own technical work, but who, like, I don't have a PhD in CS, right? Um, and so that I definitely can sort of go up to a certain point on my own, but then when I need like a more custom thing or to understand some sort of you know, math that I wasn't trained in. I definitely need other people either to explain it to me or to like do that part of the project um, with me involved uh, sort of more peripherally at that point. But I think that, you know, I don't know, you know, how many of your listeners are coming at this from the the humanities perspective or from the sort of more qualitative social science perspective. But I feel like sometimes you can feel, I think it's important to realize that, you know, both that there's like, A lot of work takes place in the intersection of like, you know, me sort of, even if I can't go like implement a concept that we talk about in a meeting, like, you know, the next day, I understand conceptually what we're after by trying to capture that particular aspect of language. And that's something that you sort of learn through these collaborative processes. And then at the flip side, like on this project, I did like close to none of the implementation work. And there were times when I was like, oh, I really am just the domain expert. I don't feel amazing about that role because in other projects, like I'm the technical person, right? Um, but I realized that again, you know, it's constantly, like it's not a universal role that you play always. And you're always adapting to the strengths of the other people on the project and trying to figure out which roles you can play, you know, in relationship to other pe- the other people, the actual people, right, who are involved versus, um, you know, who you might think yourself to be or what you think your own expertise is.
0: Mm, I mean, it it sounds, Lauren, like that's really an art of trying to figure out where you fit versus with your collaborators, slash, how do you think about when is that point where you decide I need to bring on someone else or, you know, this, this wonderful abolitionist network uh, data set at, at what point like did Jacob start at the very beginning with you on that or or did you decide at some point. Oh, it would be interesting to have a, a computational person. Right. How do you, how do you navigate those trade offs and decisions.
2: I mean, I think that like, that's really the, sort of what I, a different version of this, what I was trying to say before, which is like, even if you're the domain expert to do this kind of work, you need to understand what certain methods can get you, right, in order to sort of conceive of the project. And so the reason why we chose this abolitionist newspaper dataset was because Jacob for a very long time has been interested in questions of language change and sociolinguistics more generally. And I was like, okay, where can we find that kind of stuff in the time period that I'm trained in. And, you know, I do a lot of work. Some of my other work is on like letters and, um, you know, in an earlier era, but like smaller data, fewer people involved, even the, like the, the chunks of the text are small. Like we just, we were like, we, we, we had to think a little bit about matching the kind of research question to the kind of corpus or data set that would sort of have Interesting angles. And then I think it was also important for me to be able to say something, you know, like sure new, but something that mattered to domain experts, right? Like the other. Computational work is that you know, if you sort of have a general sense of the time period, and you can certainly make these sort of large scale claims about you know, all novels published in the 19th century or whatever, that may not be something that scholars who study individual novels of the 19th century care about, right? And so to me, it was like, okay, well, what do scholars of the abolitionist movement, like, what do they care about right now? What are the open research questions? And it definitely has to do with questions of Black leadership in the movement and the way in which those leaders have been erased from the both sort of the historical record, and also sort of how story has been told thus far. And so I was interested in the very beginning about how we could use computational methods to try to like draw out or amplify some of these contributions, which again, like the qualitative scholars have been telling us are there, you know, they've been saying like, look, like these white abolitionists get all the credit, but black abolitionists were, you know, they were doing the work. We just don't have the textual or historical record of it. And so that question of like, is there evidence, is there sort of Refactored textual evidence that we could draw out that would lend credence to this larger scholarly project of trying to sort of correct the narrative essentially of the 19th century so I don't know that's sort of that's a little bit off course but anyway um, yeah
0: <laughs> but it does sound like you you did have to really work to find this sweet spot for for this collaboration to go forward and for all of you to have pieces that mattered for your domain expertise and um,
2: yeah and I guess the point like the the quick point is like and that's hard and it takes time right
1: so what's the process like of like um communicating across these different domains of like you know in English and then computational social science or even just like digital humanities in general there's a lot of terminology that might be shared but also have different meanings on their own across different disciplines like were there any challenges that came up with that yeah, Sandeep, do you want to
2: talk about this? Because I feel like we had an interesting paper writing experience for the cultural analytics paper.
3: Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, can, I, can tell the, I can tell my sort of view or initial view with uh, which I started writing the paper was a very, you know, like CS-centric view. Um, I was like, hey, this is a great model. See that you know existing models are not well equipped to handle this problem this is a new measure that we have come up with. And we have also handled a lot of, uh, you know, like different um, um, things uh, uh, through this framework. Mm -hmm. But to be honest with you, it felt like, you know, some computer science um, person who doesn't have, you know, the actual, why are we doing this um, kind of story uh, in that, um, and I I felt like, you know, I wrote a paper for cultural analytics journal, thinking that this was an ACL paper, like highlighting everything which is great about my model and everything, you know, like, here's what I did, here's what I did, like details, details, details. Um, and I forgot about the big picture. Uh, and this is where, um, uh, you know, I think uh, through the writing process, uh, Jacob, um, as well as Lauren uh, helped me sort of improve, uh, you know, took, we, we took different pieces, which we were more acquainted with and like required sort of, you know, the level of detail um, that's necessary for the audience to, to look at. So the you know like the technical parts of it, like what I had actually done to get to this point in the data. What are the things that uh, you know like knobs that I had to turn to get the model working? All of those you know were, were the things that I really focused on. Um, the social and linguistic perspective of it. Um, Jacob and I worked together on like you know why does this matter from that point of view. Um, And then, you know, um, Lauren helped us in sort of what's the actual story here and why does it matter? Um, And uh, we were actually kind of lucky and uh, in that sense that we actually we had exactly the things that that mattered. You know, we we had that motivation of uh, highlighting the role of these uh, um, editors, you know, uh, black editors as well as women editors. And through our modeling, through everything that we did, that's the actual uh, conclusion um, that we were able to infer. Um, so yeah, so I think like the writing part was was the one which where there was a lot of give and take. Um, a lot of you know like look at it from this perspective, look at it from that perspective. it also took a lot of time because um, I have been I have written papers for ACL which are like you know exactly how to write it. Um, and that happens in a week, maybe we do, um, but this, took, this was a longer experience than any of the papers that I've written before.
0: Do you want to add anything there, Lauren? Otherwise I want to follow up on, on cultural analytics specifically.
2: Sure. No, I'll just add that I think it's funny that you think it took a long time because humanities papers take like two years.
0: <laughs> I actually thought that was a very
2: short
3: writing process. process. Um, I have, I have actually um, seen papers written in, like, two days um, for ACL. And I think, like, uh, in, uh, in I think, in ACL community, everyone is like, super proud of it also. Um, when they when finish writing the paper in, like, a really short time. Uh, and not just one paper, like, multiple papers. Um, so, from two days, I think, for, like, I think I, I know people we must have done like three months, um, two or three months of writing this paper. Um, that was a big leap for me, at least.
0: I've I've worked with a lot of political scientists who say like reading computer science papers is like reading like the very last sort of section or or page of a paper, and all the context and all the high level stuff is missing. Um, so it's it's very interesting to think about these, these different communities and how we communicate and express scientific knowledge. And along with that, I, I'm curious, why did you choose this journal of cultural analytics? What was the decision process to figure out a publication p- place that worked for somebody like Lauren, who's coming out of a different department than, um, than Jacob and Sandeep? Um, how did, how did you decide on that?
2: I think cultural analytics, there are, you know, there aren't a ton of publication venues for technical humanities research um, that are read by humanists, I will say. And cultural analytics, I would say it's like the leading journal that does this. And I think this project in particular, like I still view this as a methods paper with the idea that the findings really ideally would prompt some humanities scholar to be like, oh, that's a really interesting finding. I wonder what was going on there. And then that would then become a whole other paper, you know, whether that's me or someone else, you know, who verdict is still out. Um, and so the question is like, well, where do you, where do you place a methods paper that, ha- that nevertheless is so embedded in this particular domain that that part matters, right? Um, and so that was sort of how we came to that conclusion.
1: So when we were planning this um, podcast, we had a lot of discussions about what to even call it. So, And we settled on social data because we felt that it was the most broad and inclusive of a lot of different people's work. Um, so separating out all the different subfields within like, you know, people who deal with social data is kind of difficult. And I think among the authors on this paper, um, there's these emerging disciplines of computational social science, digital humanities and culture analytics. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on um, the differences among these different um, segments, these different disciplines or the connections among them.
2: Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) So this question of like, what is digital humanities? People have asked this for like 15 years. Um, There's actually a a website that where you can just reload it. And each time you reload it, there's a new definition of digital humanities. Um, Cultural analytics is like one name for one of the subfields which describes like more quantitative or computational approaches to this type of work. But digital humanities more broadly includes like all sorts of computational methods, or not just computational, but like digital methods. So like AR, VR, mapping, you know, like anything that you can think of that you can do on a computer applied to uh, humanistic research. I mean, I will say like, I now am in a department that is mostly computational social scientists. Like it's, it's really stats heavy. Most of the people are jointly appointed between political science and, my department or econ of my department. Um, And I do feel like computational social science is at least sort of methodologically more sophisticated than computational humanities is right now. Um, I would say, you know, but in a way, well, actually that's wrong. I would say like more statistically uh, and I don't even know the right way to put this. It's like humanists and social scientists care about different things, right? Like in the end, the goal in the humanity is is story. how can you take results and make it compelling in a textual way for scholars? And we care, increasingly people care about reproducibility, but like reproducibility wasn't so much of an issue until recently. Sort of like uh, validation, like it's more like validation happens through contextualization by being like, this makes sense because of everything else we know in the qualitative research. It's less about being like, you know we ran these permutation tests or whatever. Um, whereas computational social science is much more aligned with I think sort of more technical methods of, um, of doing research. And I think that again, that's sort of like how the social sciences are shaped too. Um, But it's interesting, like these fields are converging, and I think that the more computational and quantitative side of the humanities is definitely looking to computational social science for cues as to sort of how they can take this type of work to the next level, or not even the next level, it's just like a different audience. It's like, how can they make this work interface with these other venues? Like if we wanted to publish work on, you know, historical social data, which is, is in effect what this stuff is, so like how can we make this compelling to people who care less about what it tells us about the abolitionist movement and more about whether like, how do we know that like the model was like fitted properly or that it wasn't just, you know, random noise or like whatever it is.
0: Sandeep, do you wanna add there from coming from a computer science perspective or background, how do you try to separate out computational social science versus digital humanities or where you see your work playing into sort of these broader interdisciplinary fields?
3: yeah so yeah the advantage with so computational methods is um, in in a way these domains can be bridged because you're working with sort of data you don't really care if it emerges in like this area or that area um, and you strive to make methods which are generalizable, um, so they can work uh, across domains. Um, and so yeah I think that, Perspective from a CS, um, you know, CS student is that everything is fluid. Like, you know I don't actually know the differences between these uh, these uh, fields so much. I actually don't, um, I, you know, I don't um, uh, see uh, much difference. But then, when you start asking questions of like, what are the questions that matter? That's where you know, like, the some specific questions that social scientists are interested in, uh, specific questions that digital humanities are interested in. Um, and that, and so yeah, that's when sort of the differences become uh, much more prominent. Um, I I have to say, you know, being sort of the text as data kind of uh, paradigm is basically you have data, you have text methods, um, you work as much as possible to um, uh, to sort of you know have this method be robust to the data that you have, um, but then. Um, um, so these questions uh, help you sort of adapt these methods to specific areas. Um, so I guess you know my answer is basically like I, I see a lot of interchange um, between these uh, these areas, um, and the hopefully like computational methods, especially sort of text as data methods, being the blue. Um I mean, that's not necessarily only for text as data. I think network methods have also shown that they they can sort of like. Be applied to uh, to all these areas sort of seamlessly, um, but the broader idea is, um, in my opinion, like make generalizable methods and then you know answer very specific questions um, that um, researchers in those areas are are interested in.
0: I mean, I, I think that's a really nice um, combination, right? Of of why probably this project worked is because you are complementing each other so so well. So. I wonder if you have or can speculate about, besides you know, Lauren meeting Jacob at a uh, a faculty (laughs) um, event. uh, How do you see these sort of collaborations forming in the future, or how would you like to see them formed in the future? Um, Well, I can I can
3: I can give you my take. I think. You know, from again, from like a NLP person, um, what I really like is NLP methods have shown a lot of, you know, like promise over the years, at least from where I started. Um, before, you know, when I was a master's student, everyone was really focused on topic models. Now, like everyone is doing this last year language modeling and that. But when it comes to sort of evaluation, we are very focused on like NLP task level evaluation. And we only uh, are able to say, oh, our method works, or so this is a new model, when we show like some improvement on a specific task that our community uh, is really interested in. What's interesting is when we meet someone from like an you know, outside uh, our community, they have questions which we don't know for sure our technology that we are developing will be able to answer. Um, and this is where I feel like the collaboration with um, if, you know, experts outside of our area can help not, not just in like, answering the questions that they're interested in. And by that, you know, every sort of like the whole discipline is interested in, but also seeing like how our methods could be improved in that direction. Um, and there are all kinds of, you know, like even for this paper, um, we had to do a lot of, you know, what are the confounding variables? How do we control for that? these are the questions that our community like doesn't face all the time. Maybe you know, some, some computational social scientists, uh, researchers uh, in, our, in our community would face that kind of issue, but not always. Mm-hmm. And so going in like you know, outside the discipline a little bit will help in advancing um, um, our field a, lo- uh, a lot more uh, in my opinion. And so, you know, like when Lauren and um, Jacob talk, I hope, you know, they talk about, you know, what's different, um, can our methods work um, in that? And, and I, think, I guess like those are the, those are the conversations where I which I would even like to be part of.
2: I love that. That's such a, wow, we should just end there. Um, okay, so first I need to set the record straight. Jacob and I first met at a dim sum where that he went to because he was staying in an Airbnb and the Airbnb host uh, was like, hey, let's go eat some dim sum. And so he went and we ended up sitting next to each other. And it was like one of these weird things where it's like, what do you do? What do you do? I am a professor of what, Uh, you know? This computer stuff. What kind of computer stuff? I work with language. Okay. Anyway, so like that kind of thing. Um, so that's actually how we met. Um, but then the second thing, I love this idea of this like sort of being privy to conversations that Sandeep ended on. Um, because I think that, you know, ultimately these kinds of collaborations come from like mutual respect and interest for what the other person does. And I think that's how you find out what the interesting questions are and how you sort of keep going, even though there might not be some sort of like clearly defined output from the very, very beginning. And so in general, I mean, this really has been my approach to collaboration. Is like, I just, I have conversations with people I think are interesting and smart, and I think I would like working with them well before we figure out like what the project will be that we're going to work on. And I think over time, like you sort of, you know when you have a good project, right? And you also know when you don't yet have a good project. And so I think the key is to like give yourself that time to figure out what each other's field is doing, um, build a a personal relationship, you know, so that you're like sending each other interesting stuff so that when you do come up with the idea that you know is like the project with your particular strengths or interests in mind, like you can just like you're ready to run with it. And I feel like that's been borne out, the success of that has been borne out a lot for me. Um, Although, admittedly, not as quickly, I think, as academic timelines often require. So I'll caveat that.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, after you submitted the paper and you wrote it for culture analytics, what was kind of like the feedback that you got from other researchers or the reviewers? Um, What was that feedback? And how did you respond to it? And how did you kind of balance maybe interdisciplinary um, differences when doing that?
2: Trying to remember, Sandeep. So I feel like we got, we did, we got pretty, for the most part, pretty good peer reviews uh, from the cultural analytics paper. I mean, I think that, you know, some of the comments that we got were interesting and that one of them was like, well, you know, you looked at what specific newspapers, which specific newspapers were leading and following, and you talk about how certain newspapers were Black newspapers or women edited, but... How come you didn't uh, you didn't look at like what all black newspapers were doing and how their language changed versus all white newspapers or all men edited versus women or whatever? And we thought about that, you know, and that and it was it was interesting because it was both sort of like a technical reason why we couldn't do that, because we would have had to generate we run the project from scratch, which would have been long and annoying. Um, but it was also one of these moments where it's like, well we need to like, there's another answer to that, which is that the whole point of this project is historical specificity. And even like one of the points we wanted to make was like within the black press, the tendency has been to homogenize and just say like, these are all the same because they're all written by black people. But the exact goal of our project was to say, you can actually find interesting and meaningful differences within this group if you look at specific words that have changed. And so that was sort of like an interesting moment of like a sort of technical and historical convergence in response to the peer review, where we had to articulate both for technical reasons and for sort of theoretical or historical reasons, why we weren't going to do a change that was suggested. I don't know, Sindeep, if there's other stuff that comes to mind for you.
3: This was, this was the one that I also remember, because um, I think we had this discussion after these other reviews that, There are really like two perspectives of looking at this research. We wanted uh, the more granular perspective of uh, focusing on every newspaper individually, but then um, other um, reviewers um, um, were also interested in like the more, even more aggregated view um, um, of the data and how our model would be able to, um, I just hope with that, but like what would be our models uh, inference at the end of it? Um, but you know our motivation are with, which we had was zoom in like at the level of an every every individual newspaper so that we can give them the credit um, that that they you know might have lost.
0: Gotcha, so it, it sounded like the the major thing was this granularity, uh, your focus of granular, granularity what versus what the reviewers wanted in terms of granularity and just articulating that.
2: And I'll say that just sort of a hobby horse of mine, which is in a lot of quantitative humanities research, I feel like we've been encouraged, like we, the quantitative humanities people, it's like, oh, you can either do a close reading of an individual book, or you can just generalize about a whole corpus. And those are sort of the the two access points that tend to be provided. But there's so much more that you can do with modeling that is not just like zoom out, zoom in. And one of the things that I really try to do with my work more generally is show how these models can really complement a whole lot of different questions that go beyond just like, let's look at some trend
0: line across a hundred years kind of thing. Makes sense. So uh, I guess one of my final questions is, um, can you give some some takeaways of, of what you learned from each other in this collaboration Either positive or negative, but uh, sort of, sort of. What What are you coming away from this collaboration with?
3: So, um, you yeah, from my perspective, like when I started working on language change, a lot of research was on like social media data, um, and I actually wanted to move away from that a little bit. Um, this was this project and project before that were sort of my hints in understanding, like, more core issues with certain disciplines and how I saw myself, like, working in those areas and, like, how I could help. Um, So, Lauren's involvement in the project definitely helped me, um, you know, in getting the first glimpse of uh, work in, in digital humanities. Um, and going forward, hopefully, now we have the momentum. Um, hopefully, we'll be uh, able to do much more. Um, that being said, um, we also want to um, do more. Uh, um, what like uh, not just historical? Um, um, we work on historical data, but more sort of recent data also. And hopefully, now we also have the modeling framework that. Um, Um, that will help us uh, work on like more recent applications. Um, But I think like really getting, you know, like getting to know the important questions that are asked in in digital humanities, the kind of, uh, you know, the story that um, actually needs to be told. um, Those are are definitely things that that I take away from from this project uh, collaborating with Lauren. Yeah,
2: I think for me, one of the best lessons you come with the smartest people working on a model and it can be Like it can be the right thing to do or the, you know, incredibly expertly conceived, and you can still not have anything interesting turn up and like still have to keep on trying something else until you get interesting results. And I feel like I increasingly see this play out with my students where they're like, I don't get it. Like I did everything. Like I topic modeled that. I like made some word embeddings. I totally, I even tried TFID. Like there's nothing here. And, you know, like that, that happens, you know, sometimes there's just not interesting patterns there or like how you've decided to model the thing that you thought would be interesting, like doesn't turn out to be that interesting. And I would say case in point, this project was didn't become interesting until we did the network analysis of it. You know, like, so we spent so much time getting the embeddings, identifying the leaders and followers, looking at specific words. We poured over like thousands of words being like, how come the top thousand words just aren't that interesting? You know, like I wanted to see like freedom or justice, like right at the top and be like, it was totally that black newspaper that pioneered this new definition that is more holistic and liberatory. Like that was the the conclusion I wanted to find, but it just wasn't in the data, right? And so then we just had to be like, what else like how could like not like how can we salvage this but there definitely was a moment where it's like we don't have a good enough story here like we didn't find anything interesting um so what else can we do and i think that 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 really was an important lesson for me to experience because like i knew that sandeep and jacob like they know what they're doing like this is their expertise and to do that at the highest level and still be like "Mm," you know Um, it was nice to see like how you respond and you recalibrate and you sort of try to, you know, like iterate one more time or like layer in one more thing so that you can emerge with something that seems, you know, worth paying attention to.
1: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, So we're nearing the end of our recording um, session. So I'm curious if there's any last comments you wanted to add that we might have missed when we were asking questions about the paper or about interdisciplinary work?
3: Um, I, I think we covered a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully, hopefully this is, you know, this, this paper, uh, hopefully is an example of how um, people from, researchers from different disciplines come together and write, you know, papers that are still sort of in, important for high-level disciplines. Um, So hopefully um, more of this work, hopefully I'll see uh, in the future, not just in the journal, but also through through your podcast.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate um, all your time and uh, wonderful work. So thank you.